Welcome to Documentary First, an inside look at a first-time filmmaker's journey. I'm your host, Josh Lindsay from the Movie Proposal Podcast. And with me is our first-time filmmaker, also award-winning, filmmaker Christian Taylor. Hey there. How are you, Josh? Good to see you. Thank you. You too, Christian. And again, as always, is with us Jason Rugg, pushing the buttons, making sure we get on the air. Hello, Take Jason. Notes. Hey there. And special guest, executive producer, David Patterson, coming from New York. Hello, David. How's it going? Awesome. So glad we could all be here today. Um, we want to do a quick update of the film, and then uh, we got some questions for David. Uh, yeah. We're going to talk about moving forward, distribution, film festivals, all kinds of good stuff. So this may be more than one episode, um, so stick with us. But Christian, what, what's the latest with the film? Yeah, well, first of all, I just want to thank our listeners because I don't know if you guys know this, but we're really up on our listening audience, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's um, downloads and listens. And I really appreciate that. It's great to know people are following along on our journey. And so I want to thank you for listening. And if you have questions for us that we can address on the podcast, please make sure to message us somewhere on our social media, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We check all those all the time. We'd love to answer your questions and, uh, you know, have you participate. Um, so thank you for that. Uh, this week, there hasn't been a whole lot uh, to talk about and or that's happened in terms of film festival funness uh, that we haven't already talked about, other than we did roll out all the exciting announcements on social media this week. So yesterday was a big, huge online party for Jeff Kurtenacker, and we were thanking him and talking about his award, and it was really exciting to see you know, how everyone responded. So many people were asking to hear his score. We decided to put it out on our YouTube page. So if you're interested in hearing Jeff's score, go to, uh, I think it's youtube.com slash the girl who wore freedom maybe, but uh, you can just look up the girl who wore freedom YouTube page and you'll be able to listen to Jeff's score. It's wonderful to work to or drive around to. And then today we released the information about our best feature doc award for the Central States Indie Fan Film Fest. And then we'll announce our acceptance into the Lady Filmmakers Festival later this week. So that's been a lot of fun, exciting stuff. And there will be lots more information to come next week about the Lady Filmmakers Festival and how you can be a part of that festival. It's going to be shown all over the world. Anybody, anywhere can buy a pass to the festival and watch The Girl Who Wore Freedom. The Chagrin Doc Fest will be um, only available online to those people in Ohio. They're geo-blocking to Ohio. And then, of course, there'll be the drive-in feature. So we'll have more information about that. We're going to get a block of rooms so that uh, The Girl Who Wore Freedom people can kind of all be together. And we're hopefully going to make that trek up there to socially distance and uh, celebrate. So that's happening this week. We did receive some more um, rejections, of course, from film festivals. They're coming uh, hot and heavy. But I really want to highlight one of the rejections this week uh, because it was just amazing. I got a letter from the Bend 
Film Festival. And I want to read it to you because there, it was just such a blessing. They basically said, thank you so much for submitting our film to the festival. We, we won't be able to find a place for it in this year's lineup. They ended up with more than 1,000 submissions competing for space during this year's festival, and it was impossible to include all the films we wanted to. That said, I thought you might like to see comments from screening committee members who fought for your film. And so the first one says, this is an incredible documentary, really well made. Yes, it is a story about war, but about the people, not the battles themselves. It's about the French people and the American troops and D-Day. It's the personal side of this war that is a story well told, one I've never seen before. And another uh, reviewer said, feel good World War II story of the greatest generation. And who doesn't like watching historical shows? Having been to Normandy, it brought back fond memories of the struggle of both the liberators and the French citizens who lived through 1944. We'll play to a large audience. We wish you the best of luck with your continued festival submissions and hope you'll keep us in mind when your next, next project is ready for its festival run. Well, that's, that's very positive. Yeah, and it was totally uncommon. Um, we've now received probably 20 rejections or so. Some we haven't even heard that we've been rejected. So like this week, one film festival in South Korea, uh, they were supposed to tell us in July. We didn't hear anything. And today I found out that they, um, uh, what films they're having on Instagram. So clearly we weren't there. So we, so that, that's one way a festival, you know, handled that. Um, oftentimes you'll just have your selection status like changed in film freeway. And I'll get an email from film freeway that says you've not been accepted. Um, other times, like I've had Portland uh, also sent us an email saying that we get, did not get in. But this was a personal email from the festival director. Um, they had a thousand submissions. He didn't have to write this letter and he didn't have to include any of that positive feedback. Uh, it was very meaningful, encouraging, and it, it pointed out to me that festivals are like people. You know, they're run like people. It's not like this big machine that doesn't have people behind it. And so whoever's running the festival or what the team is has their own personality that they bring to the festival. And so the way they handle acceptances or rejections is probably a reflection of the business culture they've built and the people they are. Would you agree with that, David? Absolutely. I mean, one thing that you need to take into consideration is the Ben Film Festival is actually one of the more respected independent festivals. It's been around for 17 years. And as you said, a thousand submissions. I can tell you right now, he did not send out a thousand emails uh, like yours, um, which leads me to believe, and I think we'll see this as it gets closer, they're going to have a um, hybrid um, festival, probably showing maybe a third of the amount of films that they normally do. So with your, um, I don't even call it a rejection, your thanks, but no thanks at this time, email, I think you were in if it was a normal world. And I think he felt that, that especially when you have two um, viewers who give such praises like that, there's not that many people that look at the, at the film. I think they have like six to eight. So say if there was six, you already had two thirds of the um, people viewing it saying, this is 
a film that must be in the festival. I think what it came down to it is they needed six of six viewers to decide upon that. And they go, and we're only doing a third of the films we're doing this year. Yeah. So again, I'd like to say, well, we were in, but we're not because of COVID, but I'm Scottish, so I like to hold grudges. So yes, I'm completely blaming uh, COVID for it. It's (laughs) their fault. It's fault. Uh, We were in, gosh darn it. And uh, COVID just yanked us out by our uh, stomachs. And, And again, she mentioned we were getting rejections in a normal world. I personally would be taking these rejections a lot worse, but in a normal world, they'd be showing a lot more movies at these festivals. And I don't think of any festival we've seen yet that we've gotten in or not gotten in that they've shown their normal amount. In fact, the two who that we did get in specifically are showing their normal amount which I think is very telling. I think all the ones that we've not gotten into, they soon announced that they're doing 25% as many films as the year before. So, you know, um, that's what we're up against. And a lot of festivals are cherry picking from films that were shown earlier in the year at some of the top festivals before they were canceled. I guarantee you, a lot of these festivals that we've not gotten into are showing films from Sundance. They're showing films from uh, the fall festivals of last year or, or early winter festivals because they know they're good. And so they need to have the best flavors of ice cream in their very limited ice cream shop right now um, because they too need to get viewers to come see their festival online. And so that's very important for them to say, not only for future publicity to say, we survived COVID, but look at these incredible movies we picked that were nominated for Academy Awards. So what's the safest, best way to do that? Go with the films that premiered at some of the larger festivals that you know are automatically gonna be getting uh, Oscar attention and, and, and much more publicity than films that, that weren't there. So it's, we got a lot of things going, you know, where we, we have, I like to say we had all the equipment to climb Kilimanjaro until they took down all those ladders that they help you to go up. And then they also said, well, you're actually going to climb on the side of the mountain that no one's ever climbed before. So, you know, it's, we're still climbing mountains that people have climbed before. We're just taking completely different routes that we didn't even want to take. And, you know, that, that makes it all the more exciting, I guess, is a way to look at it. Um, or terrifying, um, exciting to you, the listener, terrifying for us, the hikers. But there you have it. Yeah, I think one thing that, um, you know, someone said to me once, it's never as bad as you think it is, and it's never as good as you think it is. And I think if you just have the expectations of going through it, taking things as they come, it's probably a better way to go. And I, I think the last, I was listening back to the last podcast and I was so negative. I think I was having, having a really down day. Um, and I think that probably happens in this business. Um, but you just cannot take it personally and you have to forge on. And I've had to say to myself, if we get into no other festivals, um, 
what we have already accomplished really for a first time filmmaker and for a small film, um, I should be very thankful for, and I am. Um, I don't think this is going to be the end though. I think there will be other things, but um, I'm truly thankful for everything that's happened so far. So it's good. Good. So one of the things I was thinking about um, as we still continue to pour over this uh, distribution contract and try to make sense of that and see if it fits for us, I started, uh, my son Hunter is home. Um, he is in the middle of, you know, waiting for job applic applications to come back. And he just has this shiny new business degree from Leeds. And so we put it to good use with him looking at the contract and figuring out things. And he sort of helped us on this last contract. And it was after it was after we had the call with the distributor, I thought, you know, it's a really good thing that he is understanding this contract and helping me make this deal because I realized this will probably be passed down to him at some point after I'm gone. A film is a property that you own, just like a house. And I started thinking about this long-term relationship that I now have with a film that I didn't really understand before. As a filmmaker, you want to tell your story, make your art, um, particularly a new one where you've never been through distribution. You're completely, it's, 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 you have no insight into what the rest of the future of this film is like. And so, David, you've had several films now that have gone through this pipeline and for many years, since 2005, which was your first film. Um, and I'm really curious, what can I expect going forward? I mean, even this deal that we're talking about is a five-year deal in North America only. Um, and I'm sure that things have changed over the years and I need to be thinking about things going forward. So that's what I wanted you to educate us on a little bit today and maybe in the next couple of episodes is what the life is like for a filmmaker and a film. What's the journey? What will, you know, what returns will we receive? What do I need to be thinking about, not that I can solve now, but that just I can be aware of going forward. Well, the greatest champion of your film will always be you, the filmmaker. Uh, you will be its, its guardian, its protector. Um, and it is, we were talking previously, get on, it is daunting and terrifying to put your child on the bus for the very first time and that's basically what you're doing with your film with the distributor. You are putting it on a bus with a stranger, hoping for it to be safely shepherded wherever it's going. And there's a level of trust that you have to put in a distributor and a level of distrust that you have to going into any agreement with them. Because once you're committed, it generally is a five-year commitment. Uh, one reason I'm sure people say, well, why five years? That's because particularly, um, with streaming now, um, things are generally licensed for 18 months. So if you're going to license it to one comp to one distributor or say to Netflix, they're going to want it for 18 months. So after that, you know, Amazon's not going to be running it at the same time. So then you can run it to Amazon after that 18 months. And then you 
maybe have another 18 months. And then basically distributors are like, well, your film's old. <laughs> and so they're not really interested in, but your film is only as old as you make it. Uh, because in respects to my very first film, Love Ludlow, uh, after five years, I reached out to stars. It had uh, premiered on stars. I said, Hey, it's the five year anniversary. Actually, I did it four years into it. It's going to be the fifth year anniversary of my film being at Sundance and you guys buying it. Uh, you know, I think it would be great if you guys would be interested in it. They said, absolutely. And they, they re-upped it, um, for 18 months. They gave me a 10 grand. And I reached out to them uh, four years later, so nine years later, and saying, hey, it's going to be the 10th anniversary. And they said, sure, yeah, we'll license it for 18 months for 5000 bucks." So that's 15000 bucks I made by reaching out to someone who had already had it once before, and clearly they were happy with what, how it went. Um, I had another buddy who, uh, I think 10 years after the festival, invited me to come to Wisconsin and do a, a PBS Wisconsin show about um, producers and directors of films. They showed my entire film, but they also did a Q&A um, prior to it. They paid me a thousand bucks and flew me out there, and I had never been to uh, Minnesota before. Uh, you know, they have a White House that looks like the White House in, in the Capitol. It's kind of cool. <laughs> and... Uh, and, you know, so I, I milked out another gram from a film that I'd made 10 years before. Um, you know, you have to follow any angles to create money uh, for your film. You know, streaming now is the one way, but, um, you know, there's many ways. Uh, if a distributor is not doing their job so much, as one distributed with one of my films, it was an adaptation of a very well-known children's book that I knew was pretty much in every library in the country. So this distributor had an educational department and I reached out to them. They yawned, uh, never got back in touch with me. So I said, well, damn it, there are sales to be made. So I sat down and I figured out the top 500 cities in the U S and then I tracked down their, um, public libraries and I tracked down who would buy DVDs at the public library. And I ended up selling over 10,000 DVDs to public libraries throughout the United States. Um, and it, it was an arduous process, let me tell you. Um, the internet is great for free porn, but when you're trying to find specific names of specific entities, it's not always easy, especially if those people don't want to advertise it. But I was able to find the DVD. DVD purchasers for a lot of the major um, public libraries, and some would cover large cities, some would cover major cities, like the Miami-Dade Library Department Library is, covers huge amounts of counties. It's not just Miami, it's all of Dade County. So, you know, that's something a distributor can look into to once they are on a DVD level, they can reach out to libraries and say, you know, in our case, we know you have a lot of... Uh, uh, people, um, retirees that rent DVDs still or go to the library to take out DVDs. Here is something that might interest them. You know, one sale is one more route back to profitability of your film. So, you know, every sale helps. So you, in a sense, were doing the distrib distributor's job. 
Absolutely. Yeah, they still got a huge percentage of the DVD. And they're like, oh, thanks. That was a great idea. I know it was a great idea. I'd already told them that was a great idea. And I just had to do it in order to actually try to make my film more profitable. And that is the problem with the bigger the distributor, uh, the more of a, uh, not, I'm not going to say fly in a wall because then they have to get up and swat at you. You're basically like a fruit fly on the wall because they don't even make noise. So, you know, they know you're in, in the room, but they really don't pay any attention to you <laughs> because they don't care. And so, you know, when you are be deciding to commit to a distributor, you want it to be a partnership. You want to know that they want to listen to your ideas and actually follow up on your ideas as opposed to just be yes man yes that's a great idea yes once you've signed this document yes we will explore that <laughs> you know it's because lots of times it once you've signed you're lucky if they return your phone calls because they got things to do and the last thing they want to hear is a cranky filmmaker not happy with the way they're selling your film yeah i thought this week um I sort of felt powerless in some senses because this whole world of distribution is so big and, and dark in that there's not a lot of visibility into any of it. It's very difficult to find any transparency around distribution agreements or what someone has done in the past or what someone's reputation is uh, because nobody talks about these things. And so in a sense, you kind of don't know what, I mean, you can, you can sign a contract, they can make you promises, but in the end, you don't know what it's going to be like until you're in the relationship, right? Yeah. And if, if that school bus actually makes it to the school, you know, that, that is, that is the, this, the way it works. It's, uh, you don't know if they're going to do what they've said. And we were also discussing this earlier. That's why in these distributor contracts, they basically say, if they don't say like North American rights, they say all rights, or they'll say all North American rights, which means anything that's not in the contract, if no one actually specifically asks, they're like, oh yeah, that was in the contract too, because we said all rights. The reason they do that is because there could be a new app next week where you blink your eyes, touch your watch, and all of a sudden you're seeing a movie in your head. Now, that sounds impossible, but they want to make sure if it happens, they get the right to distribute it through your eyelids, you know? And so, you know, and, and I'm sure you've heard the stories that says all rights in this, what did it say, in this universe or others yet undiscovered, there are contracts that freaking say that. Because they want to be able to say that, yes, they, it is in the third solar system that we discovered last week. And we just found out that Martians actually can download from there. So we're sending it out. We're going to get some money from it. So these contracts try to include everything. And one thing that we've been exploring with um, our negotiations is what are called carve-outs. If we're concerned, they're not going to do a good enough job. Or it's something that we know that they've already said they're not that interested in you want to retain those rights so you can maximize those rights as much as possible. There were some that I haven't even thought about. I mean, can you talk about the different rights of a film? So in this instance, they told us right away, we're not interested in theatrical. 
you know, we're interested in North American rights in, you know, in streaming, you know, for broadcast, for, uh, we did, we do have airline relationships. So in a sense, um, they're, I kind of appreciated what they were saying because it's like they knew what they were good at and they were going to focus on what they were good at and let go of anything they weren't, they weren't good at. Um, but what all are the different rights that are out there that I don't know about? Well, I mean, that's one of the things that you, you knew that movies were on airplanes, but you did not know that there were certain companies that handled the airlines that you go after to sell. And so that was the question. I mean, I, I said, you know, this is a great, you know, Virgin Air. This could be a very great film for them. And you're like, well, yeah, they're based in England. No, their main company is based in the U.S. And so those North American rights would be, you know, this company would have the ability to negotiate with Virgin Air in the U.S. for those rights, unless you carve them out. Same with, uh, you know, KLM or some of these other major foreign airlines. Well, if they have a corporate office in the United States that actually buys the movies, then you're not going to be able to sell those rights to them somewhere else because the, the corporate buy office is in, in, say, New York or L.A., and so these guys have those rights. Now, they said, we're very familiar with the airlines. We have sold to the airlines before, so that's a, that's a comfort to us because the last thing what you want to do is go with a distributor who's never sold to an airline, don't have those phone numbers, but now have the rights and really aren't going to pursue it because they haven't pursued that before. So they're like, so, you know, we have the rights, but we're not, we're going to do nothing with them. And so the one thing that we've had going for us with this negotiation, I think we've discussed this in other podcasts that the, the, uh, the golden ring or, or the, 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 the big one is North American rights for films, for most filmmakers, the North American rights um, are what distributors want. Um, however, certain films can have massive uh, foreign appeal. I still feel that we're going to do very well in France with this film because it's about the French, you know, and it's really the fact that they want the North American territory. We now can pursue all types of rights in Europe, and I feel we will get some. I, I'm confident we will get some. But even so, about, you know, back to my first question, this is something that's going to need to be managed for the life of this film. And um, I'm learning, it feels like now, as hard as it was to make the movie, as all of the decisions that I had to make before, uh, that pales into comparison, I feel, to what like I'm staring at now. Because it's just huge, vast business stuff that I'm not that educated on. And now I understand why when you look at credits at the end of movies, there are all these people involved that you're like, well, what do they all do? Well, you know, I mean, probably half of them are focusing on this part of it. All of the business stuff and all of the marketing from now until kingdom come or whatever. Um, and it lets the creative, the director or writer or whatever, focus on the cre creative art part of it. And right now, I feel like I'm trying to manage all of those. I'm, I mean, and I've started thinking about my next film, right? So I am having trouble figuring out how I'm going to navigate those 
business waters and sale waters, never having done this before without you, David. <laughs> you well, yeah, I mean, you brought up a good point that I, I forgot to mention is it's also getting your child on the bus and having the bus come back. You know, that child um, gets older and as they get older, there are complications. One of the things is technology. You know, uh, I had my first film, Love Ludlow, which was a terrific film, uh, which you can still buy the DVD, um, uh, used DVD, I think, at this point online, but they're out there. But what happened was the technology that we used was 203, 204 technology. The film came out in 2005. And about 18 months ago, two years ago, I said, hey, I should put this on streaming. Uh, you know, I can make some money that way. Problem was, I did not continue to update the technology. And there was in my master something called a fatal flaw that happened with a lot of the older technology where there's repeated framage, um, which you would not notice with older technology, but with digital demand, it's like, it's almost like you, you got a click in your eye or something. You, something is quite not right with you watching the movie, and I guess people can go in epileptic seizures or something like that. I don't know. But basically, I was rejected by all the uh, major companies because I had what they would call a fatal flaw. And the only way for me to go back and fix that is with the masters to find a place with the older technology, and it'll probably cost me $100,000 to remake a movie that cost me seventy five to make to begin with. And I will never get that money back over the years uh, of, you know, any type of licensing. So for all intents and purposes, this movie will die when the last DVD player dies, you know, because it just can't be seen or shown anywhere. And so that's so important for filmmakers for the longevity of your art to be able to, if they say this is the latest technology, it's taken over, make sure you can adapt your work for that purpose um, or, or it could be lost. Yeah. And I, I learned that in a sense in a hard way because when we wanted to use archival footage, um, it's a very complicated process to get good archival footage. So the reason that you see so much grainy or blurry or, um, you know, just not great archival footage is that, you're seeing copy upon copy upon copy. And so we looked at and, and wanted, you know, and hoped we would get the money to do this. There was one frame that was absolutely perfect. Henri-Jean Renault says, the GIs used to rub my head like I was a little toy. And in searching through all of this footage, I found what I called an Easter egg. It was this tiny little shot of a GI rubbing the head of a boy. I mean, I couldn't believe I found it. I was so excited. And however, it was such poor quality. And so when you, we were looking at using this archival footage, a lot of it is in 320. Um, and it's, you know, it's just not mastered at a very high rate. And so when you blow it up in a 4K um, film, which all films now have to be in 4K. It's so pixelated and blurry, you can't even use it. So the only way for us to have gotten that image would have been to go back to the National Archives, ask them to pull that, which costs some money, and then 
you have, you have to pay a researcher to do that. Then, the, then they have to order the film to be sent to an approved lab. The film has to be hung. Basically, they have to take that original film. And then they, you tell them, we want it mastered at 1080p or we want it mastered at 4K. However you have it mastered, you know, like, for example, if it's 1080p, it's like $2,000 just for 20 seconds of film or, or something like that. So, I mean, it, you, it starts to get super expensive to try to save your footage going forward. But if you don't do it in time, you know, if you don't continue upgrading it, like he said, you get to the point where it just doesn't make sense anymore. So that's a great point, David, and probably a good one for us to end on. Although I have so many more questions as I think through my future with this film. Um, and if I consider, do I really want to do this again? Like, why in the yeah. world do I want to do this again? You know, you know what it makes me think of is uh, you know, we have three kids. And every time Angie is given birth, it's like I, I'm, she said, I'm never doing this again. And then like a week later, she's forgotten about it. It's like, oh, we could have more kids. I'm like, wait a second. A week ago, you were swore we were never having any more kids. But you forget. Yeah. yeah, I think that's probably true. I just, I know that's true as a mom because I had that same experience. I wonder if it's true for the film. Although I'm sitting here talking to David, who, how many films have you worked on now over the course of these years? <laughs> on one level or another, I, I'm talking about 15 or 20 films, whether they're shorts or docs or I was involved, you know, as a producer or a writer. So, yeah, about 20 films, I would say. Yeah, like, why do you keep doing this? <laughs> well, it's certainly for the billions of dollars I've been making, you know. So, it, uh, <laughs> you know, but what keeps me humble is, like, you can't see. I'm at a table, and I think my dog just took a massive dump underneath the table because I was on the phone for you guys for too long. And so it's, uh, but, you know, it's you can't smell it, so it's really not that bad. But, you know, so this... Uh, I think that's a great point. I mean, David is not a poor man, but he is not living this life of luxury, you know, uh, with millions of millions of dollars he can burn. And I think that's one false image you have of, of any successful filmmaker that if they make these films and their stuff is sold and Disney distributes them, that they're making bukus of money. And well, that's that, yes, that's a very good point because, you know, Say even a successful filmmaker, um, unless you're the star, you know, even producers as such, you can make what they say. You can make a living, but you can't. You can make a killing, but you can't make a living. Because if you think about it, uh, I'm a union writer, so I get paid a decent amount of money for when a movie gets made. But I make a movie every seven years, so about that's on average five to seven years. So you take that money, you spread it over five seven years. You know, there's certain paper boys that are making more money than me. So, you know, the, the thing is, you can make a, you, you get that paycheck, you're like, wow, that's, yeah, I've earned this. But then after five or seven years, you're like, what? Well, I need another paycheck. And, you know, it's very different than pretty much every other job out there. You know, everyone else gets a weekly paycheck, you know, and, uh, and so with filmmakers, it's fun. It's exhausting. You're like, I'm never going to do it again. But I guess it's also a little bit like heroin, which I've never tried. But, you know, you say, wow, that's an incredible feeling. But, you know, I never want to do it again. But then uh, you do it again. So, 
Um, I guess, you know, as we were saying, and we're wrapping this up, if you're going to do it again, make sure that you keep very good care of that very first, uh, I guess, syringe, uh, you know, that if you need to use it again, <laughs> that it's not out of date, you know, so you want to be able to revisit that syringe, I guess, is, is the way to look at it. But look, we've talked dog feces, uh, heroin addiction. We're, we're covering some good topics this week, I'd have to say. Oh. Internet pornography. <laughs> oh, exactly. So all I can think about is the animatic that's playing in my head. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. I can't wait for Yesenia to or Jonathan to make it. So yeah. anyway, well, this has been great. Thank you for setting my expectations once again. Uh last night on the Holy Post podcast with our Patreon subscribers, uh Sky was talking about having a perspective puck where because I, I forget who he said maybe uh Oh, Joel Olstein basically has this device where all of his wonderful sayings about wealth and prosperity, all you do is sort of roll it or poke it and it gives you the thought for the day. And uh, the Holy Post is always one for giving you a realistic perspective. And I feel like David is our perspective puck on the Holy, uh, on the Doc First podcast. So thank you for that dose of reality, David. I don't mind being, is it hockey puck or puck from the, the, the mid? Midsummer Night thing. No, I would go with hockey puck. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, either one, either one. I'm fine. Oh, I've, yeah, been, I've been slapped around for years. I've been married. There you go. For, for hey, there you go. So. <laughs> All right. Well, any well, other questions for you guys? No, for the next podcast. So I do. I am curious, Christian. I mean, obviously, David is a wealth of knowledge. But have you have you pursued other avenues, other filmmakers, books, videos of just in terms of like distribution and film festivals and things like that and so uh, we can save that for the next time but uh yes that'll be a good question we can cover next time who else have i okay. talked to besides david uh and hopefully next week we will have you know more exciting news to share and uh stuff like that so we'll have to wait and see what happens well hey everyone thanks for listening to documentary first where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the one to tell it Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you so much for listening, for donating, and for following along on our journey. If you are able to make a donation this week, we would really appreciate it. We are supported by donors who give us $100 or less, so anything helps. Also, if you're able to share the news about The Girl Who Wore Freedom with your friends and family, please do that on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or email. And sign up for our newsletter at thegirlwhowarefreedom.com. Please go to thegirlwhowarefreedom.com slash donate to make a donation today.